Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, verses 6 through 18, 20, and 23. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against their, uh, the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nation whom the Lord, had, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that their kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord the things... Having a little trouble this morning. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of their Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the light, sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. This is God's word. I didn't figure we'd hear any amens after that scripture reading. Uh, that's some heavy stuff for sure. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm the church planning apprentice, uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, and forgive me for my voice. I have some allergy stuff going on, but I believe we'll make it through. One of the most popular phrases, uh, often turned into a tattoo, at least in my lifetime, uh, is only God can judge me. Uh, there's even like an old rap song that says, only God can judge me now, baby. Uh, all you others get out my business. Um, <laughs> It really is. Um, and, you know, uh, the, Bible, the Bible doesn't really support that view. Uh, it calls us to speak truth to one another in love, uh, to hold each other accountable in love. But either way, it's popular. It's kind of a little mantra. But one phrase or tattoo that I've never seen, a phrase that I never hear is, only God will judge me. That one's not flying off the shelves. Whether it be T-shirts, bumper stickers, tattoos, it's not even an option in the book when you go to get a tattoo. Um, only God will judge me. We live in a day where not judgment, but the opposite is popular, right? No judgment. 
That's, that's the maxim of our day. I mean, people think the topic of judgment is outdated or it's primitive, unfair, or just dangerous. I mean, really, the topic itself is almost a taboo in our society. And uh, I believe it's becoming that way even in the church. The topic of judgment probably wouldn't have been what you chose for me today to speak on. Probably wouldn't have been what I chose. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. And the passage today requires us to look at it because we're walking through the Bible and we're not skipping over things. You know, in our day, the temptation for me is to pick and choose from the Bible what to say about judgment in a way that doesn't make it feel too heavy or sobering. Right? But, but is that even possible? And would I be dishonest if I presented such a topic in a way that made light of it or omitted the hard parts? I believe I would. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the uh, Ephesian elders in Acts twenty twenty seven, and he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And one commentator on that verse said this. He said, what Paul must mean is that he taught the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance and never ducking the hard parts. You know, the Bible even says that church leaders will give an account for people's souls on Judgment Day in Hebrews 13. It also says that as teachers, we will be judged with greater strictness. I wanted to know what that meant. I even had to look up the Greek on that one. It's like you'll be judged higher up the scale. It can be translated as with more intense heat. So with all of that being said, in in light of what I've been charged to do, uh, in light of what I will be judged for, and what you have hopefully have entrusted me to do as a pastor here, I hope to do the same as Paul. Probably not as effectively, but by the same spirit. To not duck the hard parts. So, So know that I've struggled in my own heart as I've studied and prayed and had conversations with people, and and, and prepared this week on this topic. And I do pray, listen, that the Spirit would give us ears to desire to hear truth this morning, that the Spirit would come and open our hearts to receive it, and that the reality of Judgment Day would make the grace that we have in the gospel that much sweeter to us and spur us on. I think if we're honest, that many of us as Christians have just forgotten about judgment, Judgment Day since our conversion. Like, we don't think about it. It's not even on our radar. Uh, And I think there's various reasons as to why. Uh, I I think some of us have done away with it altogether because we've seen the topic handled irresponsibly by someone that we may label as an extremist. Or worse, we've seen the topic preached hatefully or self-righteously. Or we've seen it presented without the gospel. And because of those bad examples and experiences, I think many of us have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Right? We've, we've, we've seen it preached way over here, so we've taken the pendulum and we've swung it so far the other way that we just ignore it. Uh, but that's not good, because without it, we're, we're being dishonest to God's word, we're being dishonest to ourselves, we're being dishonest to others. So avoiding, you know, avoiding or ignoring the, the topic of judgment or ju- judgment day doesn't help us at all. Actually, it's harmful, and I believe that we're missing out on great positive implications for our faith today. We can't do away without it. You know, without a judgment day, there's no such thing as salvation. The gospel loses its really sweetness, and really, nothing we do even makes any sense. What are we really doing? Paul seemed to always keep this reality before him, so my question is, should we? And if so, how will that make us live our lives differently? So to begin, I want to set the table this morning by asking just uh, kind of a lengthy string of questions. Okay, so is there such a thing as right and wrong, as good, of good and evil? 
And if there is, where do we get our standard by which to measure one thing is good and another thing is evil? And if there is this standard or absolute truth, will there be an ultimate price to pay for breaking that standard? Will there be a day where we stand before a perfect judge and give an account for everything that we've done, said, and thought, whether good or bad? And if there will be that day, can we do anything about it now? Is there a way to make it through that day? And if there won't be a judgment day, is there any right and wrong to begin with, right? If there's no final judgment day, if there's no judge overall, if there's no ultimate consequences for our actions, if there's no verdict over our lives, is there any real meaning to life at all? And what does the Bible have to say about all this? I realize that's a lot, a lot of stuff, but I hope to answer at least some of it today using this text in 2 Kings 17 as a springboard where we see, where we read and hear about God's judgment on Israel. So we're going to look at this idea of judgment and judgment day. And so you see in your worship folder the three points, uh, the certainty of it, the cause of it, and the cure for it. The certainty of judgment. You know, God was clear with Israel in his covenant law that they'd experience judgment if they broke his law. He's their God. He made them. He loved them. He delivered them. They were to obey him. And if not, judgment would certainly happen. Now, you know, we talked about the kingdom has divided, right? We have Israel in the north. We have Judah in the south. And the nation of Israel up north, they've had nothing but evil kings up until this point. And even their current king, Hosea, he reached his position by treason and murder. In 2 Kings 15.30, you could see that. So there's really just bad stuff all the way around. And in verse 6 of our text, we see that for their wrongs against God, their day of judgment came. It came in 722 B.C. in the form of the nation Assyria, putting a three-year siege on Israel's capital, Samaria, and then they took people away into various places of exile. And then they went so far as to repopulate that land with foreigners who instituted their own, like, pagan religious customs, polluting the promised land, what was to be God's unique dwelling place. So what was to be a light to all nations was now a domain of darkness. It was a sad, broken, uh, sinful shadow of what it once was or what it was to have been. It's really sad. And this day, the fall of Israel was a foreshadowing of an ultimate judgment day. Where all unrighteousness and all sin will come and meet its end with God's righteousness. There will be a reckoning with eternal consequences. And in multiple places in the Bible, it says that on that day, uh, that Jesus, the risen Savior, God's Son, will be the judge. I won't go through all the verses if you write them down. Acts 10, 42, 17, 31, 1 Timothy 4, 1, and 1 Peter 4, 5. All tell us that Jesus will be the judge. That's why in a few minutes, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, one of the lines we say is that he will return to judge. Jesus will. This is why where I grew up, uh, when somebody got in trouble, you said there's about to be a come to Jesus meeting in here. I still say that to my sons, and it sounds better than, you know, there's about to be a foreshadowing of the final judgment up in here. (laughs) That may be fun for parents. You might want to try that one out. That sounds solid right there. But that, that's why we say that phrase, right? A come to Jesus meeting. Because there's going to be a judgment a moment. The Bible's clear that there will be an ultimate judgment day. A real come to Jesus meeting. We never knew how theologically correct that phrase was. And although many deny it or shy away from it, we actually need that day. We need this day. 
Now, why do we need a judgment day? Well, first of all, we need a judgment day to give meaning to our lives. Recently, the Winter Olympics was on, and every time I turned it on, it seemed like figure skating was on. I, I, I seemed like every time, I don't know if it was just my TV or what, but, uh, you know, they get out there, right, and there's a song going, and they perform by skating and jumping and spinning around, right? The stadium's packed, and then they receive uh, a rating from the judges. Now, what, what if they went out there and did that? They did their performance and everything. The stadium's packed. They get done. They strike their pose at the end, and they look over, and there's no judges, Well, that would mean that there's no standard by which to be judged by, right? If there was no judge and no standard, that means if one guy got out there and did a triple toe loop, I had to Google that, right? A guy got out there and did it. That means he jumped up, he spun in the air three times, he landed it perfectly. That would be no better than me, who's never really been ice skating, getting out there and falling all over myself and breaking my arm. There would would be nothing to say, uh, no standard to say that one act was better than the other. There would be no judge to say that one move was good and the other move was not good. Without a judge and a judgment day, and therefore without any standard of good and bad, everything becomes meaningless. So I ask you, when you look up from your life, is the bench over your life empty? Is there a judge over our lives? And if not, the implications of that are ultimately that nothing we do makes any real difference. We can't say that life has any lasting or ultimate meaning. And one consequent of that would be we can never be offended by anything. We can't call anything wrong. We can't call any uh, other view or opinion wrong because there's nothing or no one that says what we believe is any more worthy or good than what anyone else believes or does. Who's to say that one view or action is right and another wrong if there's no judge and there's no standard? Now, if we're honest, I think we know that that's not right. You know, made in the image of God, we have a sense of justice within us. You see, we need a judge. We need a judgment day to have any meaning at all. Without it, nothing we do makes any difference in the end. And not only that, but we need a judgment to have any hope at all. You see, if there's no judgment day, when we're offended or done wrong by others, or we see uh, wrongs, what we believe are wrongs, take place in the world, we'll seek to take judgment into our own hands. I mean, we need a judge and a judgment day to give us any hope at all that one day all of the wrongs of this world and all of the ones that we've experienced will be made right. And only then can we be freed from responding in anger, taking judgment into our own hands, or harboring anger against others and spending our lives in bitterness. So the reality of a judgment day is is liberating. See, we need a judge and a judgment day to have meaning to life And to have hope that there will be a reckoning, that no one will get away with anything, and that all of the wrongs will be made right. We need it. Now, the next question is, well, how certain is it, and what will it be like? Well, there's many, many verses we could look at, but just a couple amongst many. The Bible says that this day will certainly happen. In Hebrews 9, it says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In Acts 17, 31, it says, he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And we're told what this, world, this day will be like in two opposite ways. Okay, It says it will be a terrible day, and it will be an absolutely glorious day. About a week and a half ago, uh, we got to take our kids to an aquarium over in Sarasota. And while we were there, they had one of those hurricane simulator deals. You know what I'm talking about? Where you pay money to experience what a natural disaster feels like? 
Somebody pulled one over our eyes on that one, right? You pay money to go experience a natural disaster. Sounds great, right? So to impress my family like any good dad, pull out my two bucks, you know, slide it in there. My boys, I got a little two-year-old and a three-year-old. Show them how tough I was. And inside there was this digital screen that showed how strong the, the winds were when I was in there. And it got to over 80 miles an hour. So I'm standing there, you know, in the hurricane. But to tell the truth, uh, it felt like a blow dryer on top of my head. That's about what it felt like. Uh, it was a pretty lame experience. Uh, so, and then it got really awkward because a bunch of adults came and started watching me. And I'm the only guy in there. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of getting weird really quick. Um, but my two boys are standing there, you know, and I'm giving them thumbs up. And they're smiling at me and they're giving me thumbs up. And they think this is great. They don't know what the numbers mean, but they know something cool is going on, right? Uh, and, and I think of Isaac. He's my two-year-old. And if you know him, he's pretty fearless. And I thought, Isaac would love this. I mean, he, he'll get into this. I could open the door and, and bring him in. Don't ever do that, okay? That was, the, that was not a good parenting decision. Uh, I brought him in, bad, bad deal. He didn't like it. Overall, it was not that cool of an experience, but you guys have seen him. I think that many people, if they, even, if they do believe in a judgment day, believe that's about what it'll be like. I think they think, yeah, you know, if there is a judgment, the winds may blow a little bit, but I'll withstand it. Can't be that bad. Come on, you know, no way. But judgment day, the Bible says judgment day won't be like a hurricane simulator experience. Psalm 1 says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The Bible says it will wipe people off of their feet into everlasting separation from anything good, pure, and whole, or joyful, hopeful, and peaceful. It would be separation from God, who's the source of all those things. Jesus, believe it or not, talked about this topic more than anyone else in the Bible. He talked about judgment, and he said this place called hell would be a place of complete darkness and weeping. Revelation 6 says that on that day, people will run to mountains and beg for rocks to fall on them to put them out of their misery from the wrath of God. That a rock smashing me would be better than dealing with his wrath. The Bible says that it will be a terrible day. On the other hand, the Bible says it will be a glorious day. The Bible says there will be people who stand through that day, and for them it will be a glorious day. In 2 Peter 3, which was our call to worship, it says that people should be hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening the coming of the day of God. That means we should be praying for it. That we should be on the edge of our seats and we can't wait for it. I mean, it's, that word means that we should be hurrying up that day. My question is, why would anybody in their right mind do that? Because up until this point, it sounds like this day would be absolutely miserable. Well, it's because that those who are safe from the storm of judgment, who have a shelter in that day, it'll be a day of celebration. I mean, think about it. This is the day that justice will be served and God will make everything right. That all forms of wickedness will be forever done away with and righteousness and goodness will reign. Pure joy. It says it'll be the day where the effects of sin will be done away with. Right? All brokenness, broken relationships, uh, there will be no need for a mercy ministry, uh, tears, sickness, pain, no more sick kids, no more early deaths of, of loved ones, no more hospital visits, no more hospital bills. Amen? All of that will be done away with, and it will be replaced with complete wholeness, 
joy, and eternal, abundant life. It's also the day where we will be finally free from sin. We'll never sin against God again. We'll never struggle with lust or greed or hate or selfishness or jealousy or envy or covetousness. We will not struggle with those things that we hate about ourselves, that we struggle with as Christians. We'll be freed from that. We'll finally be made complete. 1 John 3, 2 says, When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And it'll be the day when the world will be made perfect. New heavens and a new earth. No more allergies to battle. None of that. Perfect world. So there will be two sides to that day. It'll be a day of life and death. It'll be a day of joy and sorrow. A day of peace and absolute terror. And everyone will experience one or the other. So listen, knowing that we need this day, we establish that, knowing that it will certainly happen, and the nature of it, how it will be, we must ask, what is the cause of judgment? And who are the objects of this judgment? The cause of judgment. You know, right before Israel entered the promised land, God, through Moses, their leader, he reminded them of the blessings and, and curses of the covenant relationship he made with them. And in Deuteronomy 9.19, he said, If you forget me, and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, you shall surely perish. And as we read in 2 Kings 17, our text today, it says this in verses 1, 9, 11, and 12. I want to read to you. It says that the fall of Israel and the exile occurred because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God and did secretly against him things that were not right, wicked things, provoking him to anger, and they served idols of which he had said to them, you shall not do this. Israel did what God told them not to do. They replaced God with other things when God called for an exclusive relationship. He called for no competitors to his place in their lives. And you know what? The Bible says that that's our story too. The Bible says that's our story too. It says we too are guilty of idolatry. Even if you've never been to church before, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that word means also besides me. Exclusive, exclusive relationship. Now, you may think, as we read the text, you know, we're not just like Israel. We don't bow down to stone or wood. But the Bible tells us we do have idols in our lives. One author said this. He said, an idol is anything more important to us than God. Anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give us what only God can give. Let me ask you this. What do you run to to justify your existence? For us, I mean, it, it may be money, status, beauty, image, power. maybe a particular relationship, material things. It may be your resume, uh, your reputation, your family. It could be anything. What have we put before God in our lives? What is supreme in our lives? I like, I like this uh, diagnosis question here. What, if we lost it, would absolutely ruin us? And what, if we could get it, would, would complete us? What if we lost it, would ruin us? What if we could get it, would complete us? That's the way to know uh, what your idol is in your life or what they are. And you know what? One thing, one uh, aspect of these things, often they're not visible. Our idols are not visible. Nobody knows about them but us. And, you know, in verse 9, I found it interesting as I read and studied this text this week. It said that Israel sinned secretly. One aspect of their sin and idolatry is that they did them secretly. And I think we can relate to this. 
Because this is an aspect of our sin too. And, you know, the Bible's clear that, that God sees everything, right? Even our secret stuff we, that we can hide from others is not hidden from God and one day will be brought out into the open. It says in Hebrews 4.13 that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And you can see that in Ecclesiastes 12.14, Romans 2.16, and 1 Corinthians 4.5. Talking about the secrets of men will be exposed. That means, you know, secret things. Deleting an internet browser history, obsessing over our bank accounts, worrying about our lives all the time, worrying our lives away or uh, indulging in sinful thoughts in our heads, we may be able to hide those from others, but not from God, the one, the only one who really, really counts. Recently, there was a TV show on one of the major networks, and ironically, we're, it's funny how this made it into the sermon on Judgment Day. I think the show was called Hotel Hell. Go figure. Um, but the, a guy would go stay at different really bad hotels, and he would a- a- attempt to expose how bad they were. And then he would help, to help them to recuperate, right? He'd show how bad the staff was. He'd show how bad the food was, how overpriced everything was, and so on. But every episode, I mean, the most intense part of the episode, the most striking and unsettling part was what he did. He'd go in the rooms, and he'd turn the lights off, and he'd shine a black light all over the room, right? You know, I mean, you know what's coming, right? Uh, He'd shine it over the bed, the bathroom, everywhere, and it would expose how nasty and dirty that hotel room was that no one else could see, right, Uh, to the human eye. That'd make you think twice about certain hotels staying at them. I don't mean to ruin that experience for you, but that's what he would do, right? And in a way, in a way, that's what will happen on Judgment Day. God will take a black light, stay with me, and shine it over our hearts and all of the stains of sin And our idols, even the secret ones that we've effectively hid from everybody else, all of our lives will be exposed. That's scary. That means for me, he'll see my idol of wanting the approval of others, showing that his approval over me often wasn't enough. He'll see my sin of perfectionism, which kept me from living comfortably in my own skin under his smile always worrying about what others thought, always kind of obsessing over how I came across, which I'll do after the sermon. (laughs) He'll see how I always worried about and attempted to control situations because I didn't truly believe he was for me or could take care of me, and always scheming just how we're going to control things in my life. He'll, He'll see those secret sins that other people don't see, other than maybe my wife. He'll see how I spent so much time trying to cover up my my flaws. He'll see how I spent time running from my past and, you know, trying to hide it because his forgiveness of my sin wasn't good enough for me. I'm messed up. Y'all didn't know that I was that messed up, right? I could go on and on. And I think we can all relate to that. We're much more like Israel than we like to admit. We, too, have idols. We, too, have secret sins. We've replaced God with other things. See, Israel's story is our story. So we have a huge problem, right? On the one hand, we talked about at the beginning, we need a judgment day to have meaning to life, to have any hope at all in this life. But on the other hand, we can't have a judgment day because we're the deserving objects of it. (laughs) So what are we going to do? Is there another way? Is there a way through that day, the cure for judgment? We need a way through this day. We can't avoid it. It is certain. And, you know, whatever it is that we immediately run to to, th- to make us think that that will get us through that day is probably a good indication of what we worship. 
Whatever we bring in our hands and say, look, Lord, didn't I fill in the blank? Raise a good family, you know, uh, done this and that. And most of us, for, I mean, for most of us, we run to our good works for this. But the Bible says that won't work. It says, for, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, no human being will make it through Judgment Day by works of the law. If anything, they'll keep us from getting through it. And using our good works to get through Judgment Day is about as effective as, you know, taking a paddleboard and trying to get through a hurricane. It won't happen. It's not effective. I thought Tim Keller, who's a well-known pastor, he said it nicely. He said, the ones who will stand on Judgment Day aren't the ones who have done the most, but the ones who know the most what's been done for them. There's only one way through Judgment Day, God's way, and it's by grace. That means you can't earn it. You have to receive it. The good news is that there's already been a Judgment Day take place, that where God sent a perfect substitute to take our place, That's his only son, Jesus, to go through judgment for us, to make a way for us. God put our idolatry on him, all of it. God put all of our secret sin on Jesus, on the cross, and he executed judgment day on his perfect son on the cross. He exiled him, like he did Israel, to death in our place so that we could be forgiven. And the Bible says the way you make that yours is by turning from your sin, by confessing your sin, repentance, turning from idols to the living God and believing in Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us both of those things. Turn from our sin to God and believe in Jesus. And in that, in a sense, our judgment day has already happened. There's only one way to stand through the future final judgment day and receive life, and that is hiding in the shelter that God has provided, Jesus. You know, we sang earlier uh, during the song of repentance. Listen to this verse again. I have a shelter in the storm when all my sins accuse me. Though justice charges me with guilt, your grace will not refuse me. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you who bore my condemnation. I find my refuge in your wounds, for there I find salvation. That's the way through judgment day. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Romans says that uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That our judgment day has already happened. That Jesus took every ounce of judgment for us. And there's only grace and mercy left for us. Now one question you may have, which I thought was, if all of this is true, why hasn't it happened yet? If all that's true, what's God waiting on? Haven't things gotten bad enough? We can look around and see that things have gotten pretty bad. Why hasn't it happened? Well, Peter said in our call to worship that the reason this day has not happened is because God is being patient. And he doesn't desire people to perish. He's being patient and he's giving people the opportunity to repent before it's too late. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, in light of this passage, I'd just like to say to you, don't mistake God's patience for his approval. I'll say that again. Don't mistake God's patience for his approval. You know, just because things are fine and calm doesn't mean that there's no judgment day or that you will not experience that day. It's his patience. I mean, have you ever considered that 
that, you know, the blessings in your life, the children around your table, your good health, your financial prosperity, or the relative peace and calm in your life may simply be a result of the grace that he's showing you. Or, on the other hand, maybe you're suffering in your life. Maybe the suffering you're experiencing in your life is a way he's trying to wake you up to the realities of life and death and how fleeting it can be and make you ponder and consider eternal things in a way to draw you to himself by repentance and faith. Have you ever considered those things? That he's being patient with you. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You have a shelter from the storm on that day and that day will become a day of joy for you. Now finally, I'd like to end with just some application for you if you're a Christian. If we have a proper understanding of Judgment Day, I think it will energize our spiritual lives now. And how we, listen, how we approach that day will have a great impact. It will determine on how we approach every day here and now. And I have five things. In light, if we live in light of that day, we'll do five things. One, we will rest. Because Jesus has taken my judgment, I can rest from work. I can lay down my weapons of defense, right? This means that we won't fear being evaluated by others. We won't fear being evaluated by others either on that day or each day here and now. We can stand through others' evaluation of us because it doesn't change our status. So I don't have to be defensive or try to uphold some I've got it all together image, Because if we approach Judgment Day with the plan to prove ourselves, that means we're going to approach every day here and now trying to earn our own righteousness to present to God. And that is a tiring way to live, miserable way to live. But if we approach that day knowing that what's been done for us, we can rest. And we can be honest about our flaws because there's nothing that God don't know or that he hasn't taken care of. Because we're completely loved and forgiven. We will rest. Secondly, we will give grace. If we approach that day knowing what we deserved and that we've been saved only by grace, that means we'll approach every day and every person and every situation extending that grace. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Thirdly, we'll seek to live holy lives. This is an important one. In 2 Peter 3, in our call to worship, it said this. Peter's been talking about the final judgment. He says, in light of the final judgment... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He said, you know, the fact that we've been saved from judgment, it does make us rest from fearing being evaluated by others. Like, we don't have anything to prove. But it doesn't make us lazy in obedience in pursuing godliness. I mean, knowing that Jesus is coming back to judge should motivate us to obey God. Knowing we'll stand before him one day and give an account. Not that we're saved by that. But on this side of the grace that has saved us, we seek to live holy lives. We've been given a new heart. We're a new creation. So we'll rest. We'll, we'll give grace. We'll seek to live holy lives. And we will be patient in suffering. Belief in a judgment day enables us to be patient when we suffer unjustly. 1 Peter 2 talks a lot about this. It enables us to turn things over to God who will do the judging. It's his job, not ours. So we won't respond in violence and hate and bitterness and revenge towards others. We won't seek to take judgment into our own hands and our relationships when we feel like we've been done wrong. Abraham asked in Genesis 18.25, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes. And so that means we can leave judgment to him. And then finally, we will share with others. If we approach, if we live in light of the final judgment day, we will share uh, this news with others. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote this. 
He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the terror of the Lord is what the King James says, knowing that we persuade others. You see, the the day of judgment spurred Paul on in mission and evangelism because he really believed that day would happen. So if we really believe what the Bible has to say about judgment day as Christians, we will go and tell others the, the realities of it, but also lavish them with the good news of the gospel. You know, when you look at our mission and vision, that's why we want to plant churches. It's one of the main reasons we want to plant churches. Think about it. If there's no judgment day, why are we seeking to plant churches? Everything changes in light of Judgment Day. The reality of that coming day compels us to be a going and sharing people. And one crucial measuring stick, I believe, of how much we really love the lost is, are we going and are we telling them? And relying in the Spirit and trusting in in His work. So I pray that we wouldn't neglect Judgment Day, neglect that great reality, but in a way embrace it and see that everything about our faith reflects brighter when viewed under the light of Judgment Day. If you don't know him, come to him. Uh, If you do know him, ponder these things, and I pray that it would spur on uh, your walk in the Christian life. Will you pray with me? Father, we we thank you that uh, you're a God of grace and mercy, that you are a God who has provided a way for us. Lord, we repent of our sin And Lord, I pray that uh, this morning, as we hold the black light of your word up against our hearts, you would expose our idols and our secret sins, and we would run to you, knowing that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we would run and hide in Jesus, our shelter from the storm, and uh, live uh, as people of grace and peace because we've been the recipients of that. God, I pray that that the reality that we've been saved from that would give us joy and hope and that we would go. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do me a favor. If you have a child that's over children's ministry, we have a lengthier service today. Please tell the workers thank you because they're still over there with your child. Um, in light of everything that Jeff has uh, have talked to us about and taught us this morning, uh, the blessing of the benediction is the promise that as you go, God goes with you to equip you, enable you, empower you to do those five things that Jeff talked about in terms of living in light of the reality of Judgment Day. So as you go, whatever you're facing, this is his presence, his promise, his power going with you. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.